I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey folks, how are you doing out there? Wow, this was um, unexpected, to say the least. Well, here we are, the start of a new reality for all of us. Absolutely crazy times. I still am not really able to properly wrap my head around what's going on, but here we are, and here we go. This is the first real episode since the entire planet has pretty much gone into complete lockdown. I'm going to call this season four. This is officially season four. We've been going season three for a long time. But now, uh, as I mentioned, the show is going to go weekly um, because you folks need some entertainment out there and we need to hear about geeky music stuff. So it's going to go weekly. It gives me something to do because I got nothing else going on. I'll tell you that right now. Um, Anyway, I released an episode um, last week to explain a bit about how the show is going to go weekly, and that's what's happening now. My guest this week is the incredible guitarist Robin Ford, which I'm really excited to bring to you. So with the new uh, weekly episodes, there's no real big changes to anything format-wise. The show is going to stay the same, but the intro section here is going to be slightly different going forward. Um, Usually I give you a bunch of background on the guest, but I'm going to scale that way back now. There is a thing called the internet where you can do a little research on your own, But I am going to scale that way back and let the episode speak for itself. Folks, as always, this podcast is listener-supported. If you are in a position where you're employed and have some income, unlike a lot of us, uh, and you're able to contribute, you can do that a number of ways. One is through a monthly Patreon subscription or also a one-time donation. Both of those are very easy to do. You can just visit stevedawson.ca or thehenhousestudio.com and go to the podcast page for all the info on how to do that. 
Also, as always, we have a wonderful sponsor today, our good friends at Union Tube and Transistor, making killer guitar effect pedals and other fun stuff, like amps sometimes, that you should check out. Go to their website at uniontone.com. And last piece of business before we kick things off with Robin Ford today is I would like to thank some recent financial contributors and donors personally. So thank you to Bill Dakin, Rolf Ahrens, Craig Lott, Morgan Mackey, Derek Cowan, Thomas Lott, and Steve Garrington. All those people have kicked in in the last couple weeks, and I really appreciate it. So that's the scoop. This week's guest is the incredible guitarist Robin Ford. Robin has been making amazing solo records since the 70s, but started off um, even before his solo career in the heydays of fusion, jazz rock fusion, a term he totally hates, and rightly so, I think. But that's kind of what it was called back in the day. And uh, he had a band early on called the Yellow Jackets and was also in Tom Scott's LA Express. And then he had some incredible sideman stints playing with Joni Mitchell, George Harrison, and in the 80s, Miles Davis. How crazy is that? He's the first Miles sideman we've had on this show. That's very exciting. He's released a whole bunch of killer solo records since then, including a big one for me as a young player in the, in the 90s that was called Robin Ford and the Blue Line. That was a, a great trio that he had back then. Anyway, Robin moved to Nashville a couple of years ago to pursue some new avenues of playing and producing and teaching and collaborating. And he also recorded his latest record here in Nashville. It's called Purple House. So you can get info on how to listen and buy his music. And if we ever get released from this COVID nightmare, he'll be playing gigs again, which you can also get info about at robinford.com. That's R-O-B-B-E-N-F-O-R-D.com. He came by my studio and we got into all that stuff. Please keep in mind this was recorded well before the days of coronavirus kicking in, so it does not come up in our talk. Thank you for tuning in and please enjoy my conversation with Robin Ford. I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about your trajectory and how you ended up here in Nashville. Like I've been here about seven years and I, I guess I didn't realize until like two or three years ago that you lived here. Um, oh, I just moved here two years ago. Oh, okay. So that, that would be why, I guess. Yeah. Um, so why, So how did you end up here? What, what's the, what, what happened that uh, brought you to this neck of the woods? Well, I've been living in Southern California in this oh. uh, very small town north of LA, about 80 miles, called Ojai, O-J-A-I. Uh, and I lived there for over 20 years uh, before coming out here. And, you know, most of that 20 years, uh, you know, I was on the road. A lot. Yeah. And um, I really got tired of the road. And I, you know, in order to get off the road, I needed to be in an environment that was supportive of other things, you know, resources nearby. Yep. And Ojai being an hour and a half away from L.A., that that's not close enough for me. Right. It was a bit of a haul to get into town if you had to yeah, do something and in back. there. Yeah. And also I don't like it. I never have. <laughs> okay. Uh LA LA you mean. Yeah. Right. And it's nowhere near easy to get around that place. It's a nightmare. Traffic, yeah. distances. So that's why I moved to Nashville. I I needed okay. to be able to do the things that I wanted to do uh easily. You know, resources close at hand, you know. Um, specifically, like, being in a city that wasn't so crazy to get around and, like, have a musical community around you. and The musical community and the accessibility, yeah. Right, right. As you clearly know, yeah. uh, Los Angeles is not that. No, it's not. You know, I mean, you get in your car, you're going to be in it for a good 40 minutes, 
and be unhappy about the drive. Right, right. <laughs> Here, you know, I'm in my car 10 to 15 minutes to get to where I need to go. Yeah, people bitch about the traffic here, but really it's, uh, they, they, need a, they need a trip to L.A. Well, that would show them. <laughs> so what part of town do you live in? Like where? What, East. You're in East Nashville. Okay, where all the action is. I just is. bought a house over there. Yeah. I didn't know that all the action was over there, but I guess yeah, it is. It is, man. Yeah, <laughs> everyone lives over there. It's yeah. a great part of town. And so I noticed like you've been playing at Rudy's. A um, couple times. Is playing in Nashville a priority for you or not really? You just want to be based here. Well, I, I do want to do more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played uh, third and Lindsley twice. Um, I just did the five spot. Oh, know. did you? I love that place. That's five, my favorite place to play. Five blocks from my house. Yeah. You know, where I was living, I just moved. And that was just to play, you yeah. know, just to get out and play. I did uh, the High Watt three weeks in a row, did okay. a residency there, uh, and then the big room next to it. Mercy Lounge. Mercy Lounge. Yeah, I did that with Brad Paisley. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, so far, you know, I've found Third and Lindsley to be just generally the best place for me to play. It's a great sounding room. Size, sound, yeah, yeah. the hang. You know, everything about it, it's sort of like, okay, this place works, you know, for me. I'm going to be there March 31st. Okay. And uh, also have a date booked there June 6th. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that's exactly where I want to be. But I, I would like to find a home. For now, it's, yeah. it's, it's good. For now, it's working. It. And, and do you have, like, who, who are you playing with in town? Like, who's in your band right now? Well, it has uh, changed from time to time because I've actually made an effort to do that. Like, I did three Wednesdays in a row at um, Third and Lindsley, and um, everyone was a different band. Oh, cool. So very intentionally, uh, because I, too, am sort of looking for something new, you know? Yeah. Uh, primarily, um, as a trio, Wes Little has been my drummer. And okay. Brian Allen, my bassist. We've made records together. Um, my last album was called Purple House. Yes. That was with a quartet that um, my co-producer, Casey Wozner, helped me put together. He plays guitar, uh, rhythm guitar in the band, and um, he introduced me to Ryan Medora, bassist, Mm -hmm. and drummer Derek Phillips. We got together and played, did a few dates, and then I said, why don't you guys just do the record with me? I'm digging this, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we did. And we've played, uh, I don't know that we played Nashville together. Oh, yeah. We did. Uh, That's kind of the way it goes, right? <laughs> well, we did City Winery. Okay. After the record came out. Tell me a bit about making that record. Um, Purple House? Yeah, yeah. It's cool. And it's got Thank a you. lot of, I mean, it's maybe more a little more song oriented, I would say, than some of the earlier yes. stuff. Um, so, kind of yes and no, but I think I know what you mean by that. And then, like, sonically, there's a lot of pretty interesting stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, was that something that you were intentionally, you know, well, wanting to experiment with? I indeed. Uh, went into that project with the full uh, uh, understanding that uh, we were going to use production values. And uh, Purple House is actually Casey Wozner's house. Casey has turned his house into a studio. As many have (laughs) around here. (laughs) Yeah. So I needed that kind of, uh, I needed time. So I invited Casey in as co-producer and... um, we, we took like four months making that record. Holy shit. Which All I right. couldn't have done. You know, At a studio. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's just totally. no way. 
So it, it was more affordable that way. And I wanted to work that way. I wanted to take my time. All of my other yeah. records have been done. You know, usually you go in and track for three days. And then you start overdubbing and then you start mixing. You know, this wasn't quite done that way. You know? So when you say four months, do you mean like every day you're over no. there? Okay. But there was time to listen, think, yeah. Yeah. you know. And Casey would work when I wasn't there. Uh, we also had a second engineer who was very helpful as well. And uh, just really took her time. And I, I can tell you one thing that really was, a, for me personally, kind of a, a big deal <laughs> about making that record. I've made every record I've done since the mid-'80s uh, using uh, the Dumble Overdrive Special as my amplifier. Okay. The same amp for all of those years. Serial number two. 102. 102. Okay. We were, Casey's place is small. And the way he records over there is generally small amps. But we started out trying to use my amplifier, mm -hmm. you know? Is the Dumble, is it 50 watts? It's 100. 100 watts. 2 by 12 cabinet. That's the way I play live. So that's the way I would, you know, make my records. Sure. It's like generally wind up overdubbing and putting the, putting the amp out in the room, you know, because the, the amp yeah. needs to be cranked. It needs to be right. have space around it and have mics at distances, you yeah. know? So uh, no matter what we did, I couldn't fit the dumbbell into the record. It, it just, just it was, was too big. I mean, that was a wake-up call for me, a serious really? lesson I should have learned years ago. <laughs> but I always, you know, I've only mainly, you know, uh, I was never really a session musician. I've made my own records and toured. So I have my sound, and that's how I do my thing. You know? I get it. So I would take my thing wherever I went, and making this record is like, my thing doesn't work making this record here. So, so did you scrap it and use small amps that were kicking around? Well, I went looking. And what'd you find? And um, I, I borrowed a, a Pro Reverb, like an early 60s Pro Reverb, for, and the rhythm tracks were all done on that. I bought a, a reissue Vibrolux. Have you seen these things with yep. the white knobs? Yep. It's not a great amp, <laughs> but um, I, I used that for the solos. The, the whole thing, yeah. The whole record has wow. was done on those two amplifiers. So what what drew you to the Vibroverb? Why that one? It was uh, I I literally went to Guitar Center. No, uh, World Music. I went to World Music, and I played every amp they had in the room, and that was the only thing that I kind of liked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, you know when I cranked it all the way up, it had that kind of blues breakers sound. You know. Similar to, you know, yeah. how I remembered Eric Clapton sounding right. in the early days. That British thing. I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, that's, what, that's how I used the amp. I didn't use it clean. I just cranked it it's all cranked. the way up. And in yeah. some cases, you know, would put an overdrive on it as well. And I plugged it into a single 12 a couple of times. It had uh, two 10s. Yeah, those come stock two 10s, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would just, yeah, plug the amp into a single 12, you know, cabinet. And I okay. think that's the way most of the solos were done on the record. All of them. I mean, that's not a quiet <laughs> setup either. I mean, a vibroverb cranked is that's still pretty damn loud. Well, loud, but it's a different. Uh, it takes up less space. Okay, interesting. It's all happening right there. Okay. It's loud, yes, but it's all happening right there. The dumble's happening all around it. Tell me a little bit about the dumble because, like, I've never played a dumble. Most people I know have never played a dumble. Yeah. But they're you know they're out there. I talked to David Lindley recently. He's he's a big fan. Like he's had dumbles his whole career. Yeah. What's the deal? Like what's going on with those things? Like how how 
magical are they? And what and what <laughs> is it about that Dumble like to you that speaks to you so much that you've used it your entire career? Well, true story. <clears throat> I don't know if you know this. Um, I've, I've talked about it in different places, but uh, Alexander um, used to hear me play uh, up in Santa Cruz in Northern California. My brothers and I used to play up there, and I also played there after uh, my brothers, my band with my brothers broke yeah. up. Uh, and I had a Fender piggyback bassman, Blackface, you know, 63, something like that. And um, he told me, after I'd already met him and, you know, he built an amp for me. What, what year are we talking here? Like in the 70s or this something? This would have been, yeah, like okay. the, uh, yeah, very early 70s. So he was just a guy tinkering with amps. Yes. Making, you know... Working with radios and shit, you know. Yeah, and he he like modifying amps. He yeah, because he his thing was like taking like a deluxe and souping it up, right? He wasn't building from scratch, was he? At the beginning, you're right. Yeah. So he said that was the the, the birthplace of the Dumble Overdrive Special. Really? Was hearing me play through play through a Fender piggyback basement. Wow. So what he started with was a Fender piggyback basement, and he started modifying it, and eventually actually built an amp, you know, from yes. scratch. And but initially it. he started modifying the basement to get what he heard from me and then make it actually you know, better. <laughs> and did he, did he bring it to, to you at that point? No. Okay. Did you even know that he was doing it? No idea. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I met him through a, a guy named Andy Brower who had a, a, an instrument rental place in North Hollywood and uh, I, I would rent uh, vintage gear from him from time to time. And he said to me, Robin, you got to check out this amp, Dumble Overdrive Special. You know, I yeah. plugged into it and I went, this is what I've been looking for. Really? Yep. So what, so what, like, tell me about it. Like, tell me what made it. Well, again, uh, it was actually designed for me. <laughs> okay. Without you knowing. <laughs> Even though I didn't know it. <laughs> okay. The man had heard me play. He heard what, you know, I was doing or trying to do so i think there has to be some like there's some resonance there yeah that i just it just happened because of this connection that already existed but the way i describe the dumble uh is it's like the perfect sound curve it's yeah. like the low end is clear and not woofy you know you don't get that where it kind of falls apart mm -hmm. um that's Mid what the, that's what the reissues do. I find the the, the Fender like the yeah you know it, that all just breaks up yeah in there and yeah mid range is just you know punchy and um, clear high end is very clear doesn't hurt your you know shove a knife into your ear it's just got <laughs> this amazing curve you know like sound curve that that's what I want I want to hear the guitar produced the way the guitar sounds and um, you know, that I think everybody kind of does and always has until, you know, pedals came into play. And now right. people learn how to play using pedals. They don't even get a friggin' sound before they, they're plugging into shit. So that's sadly almost gone away, it seems to me. But, um, yeah, I want to hear, hear everything really clearly. Yeah, sure. The pickups and the wood, the metal. And I want to hear all that. So the Dumble gives that to me. Uh -huh. But it's loud. It watts. doesn't hurt. You can be standing right in front of it. It won't hurt you. 
But uh, it is loud. It's a combo. The one that you have, it's just, it's like, it's a 212. No. Oh, it's just a head. It's a piggyback, right? Okay. Yeah. Two by 12 cab. And, okay. And, and he made the cab as well. Mm-hmm. He did. By hand. He builds it all by hand. That's literally the same one that you, you like, you've never. The same amp. Gone and, okay, amazing. I have two. Do you take it to him if it has an issue or? If yeah, it, sure. Yeah. Who else would I take it to? But there's never an issue. Really? No. It's just the perfect piece of equipment. It is. That's amazing. <laughs> but you have to be into 100 watts and loud. So what do you do if you're playing and in no, a small club? No breakup. Like if you're at the five spot, can you, do you bring that? I took it in there. Okay. People said, yeah, it was loud, but <laughs> it wasn't painful. Okay. Yeah. So whenever I recorded, I would have it in a, in a big open room and yeah. you know, put three microphones on it. You know that's going to take up a large part of the sound spectrum, you know? Did you find yourself playing differently out of the Fender that you bought? Yeah. Was it a good experience? Like, did, or did it make well, you it feel was, it handcuffed was all a learning. or something? It was all a learning yeah. experience. I like what, what wound up being on the record. I'm happy with the playing, but it isn't... The, the whole record is different from any record I've ever made. <laughs> So over that four-month period, you were experimenting with sounds and with probably a lot of different material and stuff like that as well. Was that a Songs, part of it? Songs, you mean? Yeah. We cut tracks. Uh, I had written most of the record mm -hmm. already, and uh, we cut tracks over a three-day period. And then we went to um, Fame Studios. Oh, cool. Muscle Shoals. Yeah, right on. Cut two songs there. And then we came back one day the following week and recut something else so tracks were cut in roughly Quickly. five days right so what was the rest of the time it was uh trying to get a guitar sound <laughs> <laughs> a Love ton it. of time man wow oh my gosh but also um overdubs you know there's not a ton of overdubs on that record though is there well i mean like there are three and four guitars on on most songs yeah yeah okay you know acoustic couple of electrics, a solo guitar, Casey's yeah. guitar. And um, there are saxophones on three. Was that stuff cut as an overdub or did you do that mm -hmm. live? Okay. Yeah. And one guy played all the horns, you know. So did you play, did you keep any of your live tracks from the band? All the rhythm tracks. Okay. So you're playing rhythm and you would just leave the solos and the solos were all overdubbed pretty much. Yeah. I never uh, took a solo live. How come? It was the situation. Yeah. Interesting. It was all like, uh, again, not the way that I have really recorded in the past, you know? Right, yeah. I didn't have my amp, and um, that was like, okay. <laughs> so we're doing things differently, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's just like, okay, we'll get good sounds, and we'll cut tracks, and yeah. then we'll try shit. Okay, yeah. that's cool, man. So in on other records, like yeah. when I... So the first record that I ever heard of yours mm -hmm. well i mean i started hearing about you in the blue line days mm -hmm. when i lived in canada in vancouver and you guys came through the town pump and played there and it was like we all all my whole crowd of musicians was that that was show. that vancouver or mm -hmm. okay yeah. town pump was vancouver yeah 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 i remember playing there a couple times it was totally mind-boggling like we it, it, it blew all our minds and so everyone was like really into that record. And then I can't remember what year that was. That was like mid nineties maybe, or even early. No, 90s. earlier. Yeah. That would have been like 91. For those kind of records, would you have been cutting more live that like that obviously would have been. Oh like, yeah. Okay. So th those would have been. Well, know, that doesn't mean solos weren't redone. Do you have a preference about how, you know, how you like tracking records? Well, one of the wonderful things uh, for me at this point 
having had this experience in particular, you know, and many others, of course, but, you know, making records is making records. It's a different trip. And uh, so uh, it's, one needs to be flexible and you need to know how to uh, navigate different situations. I can tell you that on a personal basis, I'm really moving towards cutting live. So I've just spent uh, several days, as I was telling you, over at Southern Ground. I'm producing a record on uh, Bill Evans and myself. Bill's the tenor player. Oh, great. Who uh, He was the first tenor player with Miles when Miles came out of retirement. Yeah, man. And uh, Bill and I have worked together off and on over the years. And, okay. Um, Where does he live? He's in New York, actually upstate New York. But he's trying to move to Nashville. Really? Yeah, he wants to move here. So we did exactly this, although uh, in a different studio, last year. Made a record uh, and went to Japan. <laughs> For a tour. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what, that's what you do. Yeah, the whole thing. Is like, <laughs> like, he said, do you want to go to Japan with me? And I said, yes. I said, why don't we record something so we have something to sell? And we did exactly that. I produced the record, and I'm, we're doing it again, and I'm producing this one. Okay. So we're over at Southern Ground. And uh, it's a live album. You know, I mean, we just set everything up uh, it, so that we could cut live and keep as much of it as we possibly could. And we have. He's isolated. Drums are out in the room. Uh, Keith Carlock, the drummer. Oh, nice. Who lives in town. Yeah, he does. Um, Daryl Jones on bass from the Rolling Stones. Nice. Uh, Miles Davis, more importantly. Right. But, uh, and That's a lot an of other people. <laughs> That's an incredible lineup, man. Yeah. Holy shit. And Daryl's just direct. He said whenever he records, he just records direct. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So no leaky dishes there. And I used my Dumble uh, with the cabinet in a, an okay-sized room that had glass and made of glass and wood. You know the southern ground. Yeah, so it was in one of those pods that are on the main the, floor there? Yeah, like there's a larger one, and we had yeah. Bill in there. Okay. And then mine was in the one. Yeah, I've used that know, exact one. Straight I know the to one the back. Made. So I had the Dumble in there. and, and How I, did that work? Okay, uh-huh. and we figured it out. Do you have a history playing good. with Daryl Jones? Well, uh, Daryl and I uh, were a part of a thing a few years ago called Mile, uh, Miles Smiles. It was a tribute band to Miles Davis, basically, to Miles' yeah. music, which included Wallace Roney on trumpet, mm-hmm. Joey DeFrancesco on organ. Nice. Uh, Omar Hakim on drums. It was oh, wow. a crazy band. Yeah. Rick Margitza on tenor, and it was all, you know, music of Miles Davis, and that was a blast. There's some YouTube footage that's quite good. Okay, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. And did and, you guys do uh, gigs as that configuration, too? We, we toured in Europe. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, only Europe. Why? Why not, why not in North America? Oh, timing. Yeah. Just Interest from, you know, yeah. like everybody's different schedules. and. Is it hard to get Daryl Jones locked down, or is he like pretty open well i think the stones were kind of on a hiatus at that time they, they still kind of come and go from it you know he's an interesting guy because he seems to have like i mean he was so present doing so much crazy stuff in the 80s and then daryl yeah mm-hmm. and then he got that gig in the stones a long time ago now and he, he's 20 just years like, he's been with yeah the it's amazing mm-hmm. and he just kind of like he's vanished off the off the recording face of the earth a little bit you know yeah. compared to what he would have obviously like he doesn't oh, really yeah. need to work in the we same way. We would have way. seen a lot more of him. Yeah, that's what I feel like. But he's done a lot of things. Like, you know, yeah. he, but the people that he works with, you know, it's kind of like the New York crowd. You know, yeah. He'll go out with, you know. Okay, so he still does stuff. 
He will. Okay. Just like this, you know. Right, right. We're making a record and we're going to go to Japan. We'll be there for a week. This is jumping around a little bit, but um, talking about Miles Davis, can you tell me a little bit about your, I know it was a brief stint, but mm-hmm. kind of how that came about and yeah. what the experience was like a little bit? Yes. Um, I got a call actually initially from Jimmy Haslip, the basis for the Yellow Jackets, yeah. because Tommy LaPuma, whom I had met uh, as the producer for the Yellow Jackets, uh, was trying to reach me because Miles needed a guitar player. And this is pre-Mike Stern or post? Post. So Stern had just left the band. Yeah, for the second time. Okay. And uh, Tommy uh, was producing the Tutu album. He called Jimmy Hassup looking for my number. Jimmy said, you got to let me call Robin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to have the fun of right. doing that. You okay. Know, saying, hey, Rob, Miles is looking for you. One of those, you know. Was it really like that? Was it yeah. like? And were Shot you like, the hell out of me. Did you believe him, or did you think he was full yeah, of shit? Yeah, I did, of course. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, um, yeah, I spoke with Tommy Lupuma. Here, let me give you Tommy's number. Give him a call. So I called Tommy, and uh, he said, so you want to do it? You know, and I'm like, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know? What else are you going to say? And uh, he says, okay, well, let me, I'm going to call Miles. I said, he said, I think he's at the studio, and I'll have him call you. Was Miles aware of you at this point? or Tommy had played recordings for him. Okay. And uh, recommending me. Three days go by, no phone call. (laughs) Okay. You know, every time the phone rings, I think it might be Miles Davis. But one day it was. And uh, he just goes, Robin, what you doing out there? (laughs) I'm like, oh, you know, nothing. (laughs) I always like to say, you never felt more white and unhip than when you were talking to Miles Davis. I bet. I bet. So, uh, dare I say. But um, he said, well, you want to play with me? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay, here's Jim. So he puts his tour manager on the phone <clears throat> and um, worked out the details. Ten days later, I was on a stage. Uh, there was having, no, no audition? Never no... met the band, nothing. Holy shit. Uh, they just gave me some terrible charts and some cassettes. Of, like, current material the current, they were working yeah, on? Okay. they were playing, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And um, that one of the keyboard players lived in L.A., Adam Holtzman. And uh, he brought over the music. Yeah. I just worked with it. And then I got together with him one day uh, for maybe an hour. You know, it was like, he goes, well, you seem to know the music, you know. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. And uh, so, as so, I say, 10 days after getting the music, I, I flew to Washington, D.C., to play my first show with him. I met him at the gig. I met the band in the lobby on the way over. Wow. And it was a co-bill with B.B. King. Amazing. Incredible. And I was sick to death from fear. Absolutely. I was curled up in the back seat of the van going over to the gig. <laughs> sick oh my God. with fear. Was we, there any, like, direction about how it was going to go down or, like, what the no. gig was going to be like or, like... What tune, like, I guess you sort of knew what tunes you were going to do, but you I never know. I got 25 pieces of music to learn. <laughs> Holy shit. You know? And it was impossible, like, to really learn it with the charts that I had and the fact that I was on my own in that short a period of time. Bill Evans is calling me right now. <laughs> you better get it. <laughs> um, so, uh, funny. I just listened and listened. I just always had it playing. Showed up and... Walked out there and plugged in. <laughs> How did it go? Like, what, what was that first gig like? Well, the f- the f- 
it was a horrible place to play, and I, I missed sound check because uh, I had to fly out there on a red eye. Oh, God. So I got there at like 5 in the morning. Oh, my God. 7 in the morning. So you're just like And I just, I just said, I, I got to go to bed. I just went to bed, <laughs> and I slept. <clears throat> so um, I hadn't even really been able to set up my shit, you know? And right. It was done by the... The tech. The tech. The yeah. Whom I'd never met. <laughs> oh, my God. And um, so anyway, the first song is You're Under Arrest, just super fast. Yeah. Really fast, loud, felt like a rocket ship was taken off, given the, the situation. So who's in the band? Uh, Robert Irving III was the uh, kind of musical director, keyboard player. Okay. Adam Holtzman was the second keyboard player. Well, Bob Berg was on tenor. Okay. Um, Vincent Wilburn was on drums. That's Miles's nephew. Oh, okay. Marilyn McCoo, I think is her name, on percussion. Stevie Thornton on per- percussion. Two percussionists. Uh, Felton Cruz okay. was the bass player. So we play that, we start that first song, and I'm just like freaking out, quite honestly. <laughs> Holy, <laughs> wow. It really, it felt like a rocket ship was taken off. Was that so, one of the songs that you were prepared to play? or? Well, I knew it. Okay. Yeah, I knew the melody and the bass line. It's just one chord, basically. It changed keys, and you'd go to a different key, and Bob Berg would play, go to a different key, and I would play. Okay. Go to a different key, and Miles would play. So that first, you know, I just, head down, I played every note I knew, you know. Wow. I figured, you know, he's had John Schofield and Mike Stern. They're both very noty players. Yeah. So I figure he's going to want a lot of notes, so I played every note I knew. <laughs> As loud and as fast as I could, you know. And then I just kind of sheepishly look up. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's five feet away from me looking at me, you know. And he just goes, damn. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So I'm like, whew. Past the audition. So I got through the night. Yeah. And then the next day we went to Washington, D.C. Again, excuse me, to New York. Yeah. Again, a co-bill with B.B. King at the Beacon Theater. And I just literally had a, a talking to myself, you know. I just went, you I can cannot. do this. Not, no, no. I'm like, you can't go out there like that, man. You have oh, really? got to just, you've got to relax. Yeah, yeah. This is sink or swim. And uh, I wasn't gonna live my life playing with Miles Davis, feeling like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. the, you know, that he gave me that prop. I didn't even know the guy, you know. Yeah. It was terrifying. So uh, what about, I just, what about, I just. After the gig, did he did he say anything to you? Didn't see him after the gig. Wow. No, he would always just walk off the stage and he's gone. Yes, yeah. right. You didn't see him. So uh, I, I just had to talk into myself, you know. Uh-huh. And, and I, I kind of went out on that stage in New York kind of over-the-top confident, you know. Like I had to act like it was my band. It was my only way That was your survive. way of coping. Yeah. Like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> He was grinning from ear to ear. At a certain point, I look over at him, and he's like smiling at me, you know? So he was digging it. And I'm like, okay, just keep it just like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So there was no way I, was, I, I would stay in that band feeling terrified. Other people were. I bet, yeah. Yeah, they, they were scared, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was a very intimidating person, as you can imagine. I can imagine. But it was sort of like, you got to stand your own ground, man. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to man up. And that's what he wanted from you. And I figured that out pretty quickly. And did you ever have much interaction with him at all? Little. A little bit? Yeah, from time to time. Yeah? You know. Um, How long was your run in that band? I was there for about five and a half months, and I quit. Because um, I had the Talk to Your Daughter album to do. 
uh, like uh, you had for Warner Brothers. You hadn't made it yet. Yeah, you know, uh, the demos had been made. Okay. And basically, the demos turned out to be the album. But I I did record more tracks after that. Okay. So was was Warner kind of leaning on you to get with your solo? No. The first thing, uh, actually, I wouldn't have been able to stay with Miles as long as I had had I not gotten a phone call. You know, Tommy Lapoom, excuse me, um, Ted Templeman was uh-huh. my A&R producer. He called me up one day. He said, hey, Robin, I got to tell you, there, there's a, a lot of activity over here right now. We're not going to be able to release your record this year. And I said, well, thank you for telling me that, yeah. you know, because I can keep playing with Miles. Not so bad. Otherwise, I would have only been with him for about six weeks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is what I thought. I wasn't going to tell him that before I came in. Uh-huh. I wanted the experience, you know. And it was obviously going well enough that you probably would have stayed in the band had you not quit? Uh, I didn't like it. It was, you know? why? It was just... I quit because I didn't like it. Okay. I mean, it was great at first, but yeah. the band was very, dis- very, everybody just kind of went their own way. It didn't feel like a group. It didn't feel like a bunch of people who liked each other and got along yeah. well. I know what you mean. And it's just, yeah, just kind of disparate like that. So Life's just, too short. Yeah, and, uh-huh. and the, the management didn't treat us well. We traveled with the crew. Yeah. We got little sleep, <clears throat> went on the road. Really? Yeah, and not comfortable. So it was like Miles was treated as the god, and you guys were just sort of like We were definitely second-class citizens yeah. uh, to management. And Miles had no interest in knowing about He He didn't want to know. He didn't travel with you guys or anything? No. Wow. We flew together sometimes, but... That's um, not a great way to keep a band oh, together. He, he's Miles Davis. You know. He is. But yeah, Nobody still. quit. I quit. Daryl Jones quit to go with Sting, right. which kind of makes sense. Yeah. Sure. You know, but nobody quit, you know, because you wanted to be there. But I think the situation, you know, I, I think I was there at a, at a little transitional period for him. You know, uh-huh. it was his first record with Warner Brothers. You never played on a record, though. No. It was all live mm-hmm. stuff. Only okay. live. And was there a lot of work? Like, was he a tour? Was he a road dog? At well, that over that five and a half mu- months, you know, we toured Europe, we toured in the U.S. Yeah, fair amount of, of work. What an experience! Yeah, it was. It was uh, particularly the first, you know, five, ten shows. You know, and then what about musically? Did you? Was there stuff to? Like, obviously, there was like a million things to learn from a guy like Miles Davis, but whether you actually did in that situation or not might have been a different situation. Honestly, uh, I have listened and had listened, you know, to so much Miles Davis up to that point. Mm -hmm. I'd learned the lessons. The one thing that I did learn there was what I would refer to as a musical device that Miles had passed along to Robert Irving, the keyboard player, saying, this is what I want you to play behind me. And it's, it's basically a, a, a musical, quote, device, wherein, you know, you play uh, a, a major triad, and then there's a little movement to turn that into fourths. Okay. Major, major triad, uh, then go in, uh, into fourths. Uh, simple movement like that, and basically move that around the pentatonic scale. That's- I could show it to you. Shall I show it to you? Yeah, show it to me. Could you hand me that guitar? So, you're a guitar player, so if you played a G triad like that, yeah. you know, and then you just drop the uh, G and D okay. down a, f- uh, a half step, then move that oh. according to the pentatonic scale. 
and that is what he wanted. That well, that that created, you know, the sound palette. Wow. You can kind of move it, yeah. move those fourths around um, the high note. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah. So and, and you know, major uh, triads can be moved in minor thirds, which is diminished. Yeah. That I already kind of knew, but this thing, that that little musical device. Interesting. And so that was something that the keyboard player hipped you to? He was like, yeah. this is something that... I said, what are you doing over there? What is that? And he showed it to me, and it was okay. exactly that. Wow. So I'm like, yes! <laughs> this is the hippest thing I've ever learned. You know? <laughs> and it was. So what year was that? That was like 83? 86. Oh, 86. Okay. Yeah. And so you had the Yellow Jackets going already for a few years at that point? Well, Yellow Jackets basically started as my band in 1978. And I continued with the Yellow Jackets, who did nothing for quite a period there <laughs> after the, uh, until the, uh, after the first album. Okay. Basically, that band was kind of a band for about three years. Right, right. Beginning as my group. Was that a, a affiliated with the Tom Scott guys at all? Was, mm-hmm. there, was there any crossover? It was no. a totally different no. yeah. crew. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, and so what was, the, what was the intention with the Yellow Jackets? Like, was it... Um... My, I, well, I, I actually, Russell Ferrante, the keyboard player, yeah. he and I had played together, you know, uh, in Northern California... Uh, before I, you know, went off with the LA Express and Joni Mitchell, and uh, we kind of had a deal, you know. I was uh, staying in LA, not exactly living, but staying in LA. But I said to him, you know, once I get a record deal, I, I, I want you to move down, and, and we'll keep going. And he said, okay, you get a record deal, I'll move to LA, <laughs> and that's what happened. So Russell and I um, started playing a little bit in LA and trying to find the right people to play with. And I was living uh, with um, a tour manager who was playing with Flora Parim and Ayerto. And the band was going to be at the Roxy in Hollywood. Yeah. And he said, you got to come out and see the group. I'm like, yeah. So I went to the show and just loved the bass player and the drummer, who were Jimmy Haslip and Ricky Lawson. All right. And hence the Yellow Jackets were born. Yeah. Was it a like a fairly quick thing where you guys all got together and it jived really well? No, um, Ricky, uh, I I didn't. I don't. I don't think I even met him 
I wanted to. Yeah. But he uh, had gotten a gig with Al Jarreau right after Flora Perim and Ayrto. Jimmy Haslip was free and lived in L.A. Perfect. And so I uh, you know, called Jimmy and said, hey, you want to you know, come over and play, see what might happen, you know? He came over and just immediately we just clicked. clicked. Just cool. personally. We're looking at each other in my little studio, you know, like playing. And uh, we just started laughing because we were having a blast together. Yeah. It was like, nice. there you are. <laughs> and and w- like, had you written a bunch of the material already? That there was nothing. There was nothing. Okay. No. Musically, was it the direction that you kind of were looking to go in? Or was it kind yeah. of? Yeah. I mean, okay. I'd just come out of the LA Express. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a fusion-y thing. And I'd been signed to Electra Asylum Records. And it's like, that's what I was doing. So I just did it, you know, why change it? And I, I was writing. And yeah. some of the music, you know, better than others. And, you know, so we were, f- I was fooling around with that, uh, the writing side of it. And we were looking for a drummer, you know, locally. And we tried a few different people. And finally, uh-huh. uh, Ricky got off the road. And the he timing worked out for the record. So we got together and played with Ricky one day. And I was like, yep. <laughs> and so that band went into the studio and recorded The Inside Story, yeah. which was my first uh, album. What do you remember about those sessions for that record? Like, well, you, you, were, you were, one thing you asked me a moment ago was about, you know, was it what you expected? Yeah. Indeed, that music sounded exactly the way that I heard it in my head. Awesome. Being played by those people. Wow. I'm like, this is absolutely a match made in heaven yeah this group of people and it was and they are very hard to come by they are indeed those matches yeah yeah so you gotta love them when they're happening (laughs) it is also my theory however that after three years you should break up no matter what no matter what that's the that's the length of a the lifespan of a band yeah interesting after three years you should just do something else okay that's about the length that, that you were in Tom Scott's band, right? The LA Express was 74, 5, and 6. So three-ish years. And so at that point... No, like, that's three years. <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> well, I, there was Depends a whole, on where... On, well, in, yeah. they didn't do anything in 75. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, did you start... Like, were you touring all over the place with, with, um, for the, solo, the first solo record at that point? My first solo yeah. record? Uh, both Jimmy and Ricky disappeared after we did the record. They oh, both okay. went out with Al Jarreau. So Russell and I had to find another bassist and drummer. And we did, like, I think a two-week tour of the, of the East, Northeast. I think we might have played in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we did the Roxy in L.A. I did a gig up in San Francisco. But it was not a lengthy tour. And, uh, was it an easy record to make? We had a blast. And were you writing stuff in the studio, or had you? All, no, I'd written. It was I wrote all that music. Yeah, Russell actually co-wrote two things with me. Otherwise, I wrote all that music. There was there's one cover on there. We did a Richard T. song called "Need Somebody." That was the vocal. Yeah, because you weren't doing a lot of singing in those days. Was that like? Well, I mean, I, I, I was. I had sung, you know, in my earlier years, but I'm I'm not a great singer. And, um, you know, I wasn't really ready to be a singer. So I got away with a couple of songs on the record. You know? But that's but, not why people bought the record. Right, and you were signed as like a fusion instrumental yeah. band, right? Yeah. And, so, and yeah, like in those days, like that was a major record deal. Like, oh, yeah. It's amazing. 
to I mean, think I of. couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't deserve all the money they gave me. <laughs> so, so they just like, yeah, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around what that must have been like being a pretty progressive fusion band and getting like a big fat major record deal like that it wasn't even a band it was just me amazing you know uh, that wasn't a band deal that was my deal but in those days there you know fusion acts were selling a lot of records yes weather report days i guess and huge records it was a high time right you know for fusion actually i hate um, that name <laughs> yeah i know what you mean <laughs> did you take time and like spend like was it an expensive record to make because the budget six was there weeks in the studio wow Six weeks. Fantastic. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Cropper was my producer. Really? Yeah. He lives just down the road. Yeah. And so you'd made records with Tom Scott before, but this was your that was your first solo record. And you'd made mm -hmm. you'd made the bands with your your brothers had recorded. Yeah, I mean that was very small time. Can you tell me a little bit about your er, your early band with your brothers? And I know it was named after your dad, but it was the yeah. Charles Ford band. And well, um, you know, siblings. You know, we were. Yeah. Patrick was three years older. Is three years older than I. He's the drummer. Yeah. And my younger brother Mark. Yeah. Uh, two and a half years younger than I, and so you know, just getting out of school. You know, we we played together in school. In high school. Yeah. Yeah. A bit. But, you know, then he was off to college and, uh, you know. And you guys were pretty, like, that was pretty hardcore Chicago blues kind of stuff. Well, we concentrated on Chicago blues, B.B. King, and some attempts at playing jazz, some version of jazz, you know. Basically, you know, very simple modal things or bluesy jazz things. Yeah. Were the three of you into the same things growing up? Like, uh, Well, my older brother, Patrick, uh, Quite frankly, you know, I learned a lot about jazz through his record collection. So what were some things for you that, like, when you were just learning to play that, like, maybe, like, a couple from the blues world, obviously B.B. King was a big one for you, but who, who else were... were well, the, the were real you? source, you know, the, the origin, and I still trace everything I've ever done right back to it, was uh, the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Okay, Bloomfield. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Bloomfield. So, and, and the energy of that band. And basically, we were like a little Butterfield Blues band, you know. That's, that's who you modeled was, yourself after. Yeah, for okay. sure. He was your favorite guitar player, would you say? No question about it. And did you ever get a chance to see him play? I bet you did, right? Many times. Uh, how was that? Awesome. Oh, my God. <laughs> my uh, hero, man. Because you grew up in the Bay Area. Where I grew up is two hours north of San Francisco. So on the weekends... You would go down. We'd go down. Uh, we heard... Everybody. What were some of the highlights that you saw at the Fillmore? Everybody. B.B. King, Hendrix. Holy shit. Cream, oh Led God. Zeppelin, you know, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, yeah. Young Rascals. Amazing. We saw everybody. The only band that I didn't see back in those days was The Who. And somebody pointed out to me that I hadn't, uh, that I, if I hadn't seen uh, the Mothers of Invention, then I hadn't seen everybody. <laughs> but, you know, Moby Grape, The Birds, you know. Wow. Everything. How was the Hendrix show? Was Seal it? Schwal Blues Band. Nice. Butterfield. How was what? How was the Hendrix show? Was it like Band of Gypsies days or what no, was the it, it was, was uh, He was actually touring on the first album. Oh, wow. It had just come out and we didn't even have it. Holy crap. And it was absolutely the most insane thing ever. Really? Yeah, just in terms of sheer electricity, magnetic, yeah. charismatic. Yeah. Um, he was clearly 
the most powerful in, in all of those ways. He opened the show. The first song was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which yeah. we all thought that was so cool. Yeah. Also in those days, everybody sat on the floor. Really? They were, they were standing rooms, you know. Yeah. But everybody came in and sat down on the floor. Really? We heard, listened to everybody that way. I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the mid-60s, you know. Yeah. And uh, so he plays Sgt. Pepper's, and we're like, this is great, you know. <laughs> and then he starts the uh, that little thing at the beginning of Foxy Lady where he's just kind of <laughs> scratching the string onto yeah, the fretboard. Yeah. yeah. Turns into feedback and explodes. Yeah. The entire audience went, <laughs> stood up. Wow. It was amazing, man. Yeah, those kinds of experiences are very rare, you know, where yeah. you have that group energy like that. Yeah. Holy mackerel. I think I've wow. only experienced it one other time. That was playing with George Harrison when I was on the road with George. Really? really? Okay. Uh, the very first show we played was in Vancouver, Canada. Very, my old hometown. Two-hour tour, a two-month tour, two and a half months we were on the road. Um, and that very first show... 1974, oh, man. that very first show, the energy that came toward us as we walked out on that stage, it was bananas. toward him, of course, really, was yeah. like a tidal wave. And you were right there in the Unbelievable, middle of Unbelievable, man. <laughs> I just, I couldn't, I can't even describe it, you know. Tell me how you got that gig. I know you played on the Dark Horse record. Uh, yes. Um, tell me about how that came, came around. Well, I was on tour with Joni Mitchell. Yep. Uh, the first tour we did, 1974 also. And, um, Pretty good year for you. It was a crazy <laughs> year, absolutely ridiculous. So uh, we played in London two shows, two nights. With Joni? Yeah. Okay. And uh, the second night after the show, I turned around. We were all backstage, and I just kind of turned around. And there's all things must pass looking at me with a big smile <laughs> and says, Hello, Robin. He's <laughs> you know, totally the boots, the plaid overcoat, the long hair, the you know, all of it with a yeah. big smile and he says, Hello Robin. Wow. And I was just I was I I couldn't speak. I was dumbfounded. Uh-huh. I don't even remember anything after that until we went back to the hotel. He came back and we all wound up in Joni's suite. And I remember sitting on the floor, he was sitting in a chair, and I was sitting cross legged in front of him. Mm-hmm. Cross legged in front of him. And he told me the story of his of his Les Paul, red Les Paul getting stolen and finally getting it back. That's all I remember. Okay. <laughs> and uh, a couple of months later, we were off the road. I was staying with Tom Scott at his house during that period. Yeah. When we were out with Joan, because we were out with her for like. It was nine. the full Tom Scott Express that was Joni's band. At that it was point. the L.A. Express. Right. Yep. Uh, so I was staying at Tom's. We were in his studio doing something. Yeah. Phone rings, it's George Harrison, and he asked me if I would do the tour through Tom. Tom was already doing it. Had you done the record at this point? Yeah. You had? We, okay. uh, after those two days uh, in London and meeting him, uh, we had the day off the next day, and uh, we all went out to Henley on Thames. Really? You know, his place out yeah. there. I've seen tons of footage of it. Yeah. <laughs> it was a nunnery. That's how it began. I right. don't know if you know that. I do. But... Um, we went out there and hung for the entire day, and we started recording like around midnight. Is that where they made that whole record? Uh, I don't know if he made the, re- the rest of the record there. Okay. But we cut those tracks there. Who was producing that record? Him. He was. Okay. 
was it pretty easy going? Like you just ripped a couple solos and that was that? Or? Oh, there's, there are no solos. <laughs> no, there are songs. He didn't play. He just, um, he was in the control room with the engineer. And um, we were out in the studio and like, here's the song, learn the song, record mm-hmm. the song. Rhythm yeah. tracks, you know. Okay. Record comes out, so you get this call to do the tour. And, and was it pretty, yeah. uh, was it, a, it was a finite thing? It was like a two, three month tour or what was yeah. the, yeah. It was like, uh, I think it was November, December, or December, January. I had, my, I had my 23rd birthday on that tour. So we were on the road in December. You're just a kid. Yeah, I was a baby. I was so unprepared, honestly, for that. What was his vibe like as a band leader and stuff? Like, was he a... It was, you, you know, he, he, he had never toured before that, and he He'd never, never toured after it. Really? It's the only tour that he ever did, and he realized on that tour that he was not suited to it. Okay. He never did it again. Wow. The only thing he did. He never did, like, an All Things Must Pass tour or anything? No. Wow. He did Bangladesh. Yeah. And uh, I remember he went to to Japan with Eric Clapton Uh four or five shows. He did not tour. He just didn't dig it. Mm -mm. Didn't travel well. I don't think he wanted to lead a band. How was it musically? Like, was it good or did it feel Not really. It wasn't great. No, we had a great band, but we had no leader. And I don't mean to put him down. Yeah. But he was not comfortable in the role and his voice was shot. and He didn't take care of himself out there so that his voice would get better. And he he just wasn't up to the task. And again, I don't mean that as an insult. I know what it's like to walk out somewhere and realize... Shit, I'm not ready for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that, but and, that Vancouver show where people went absolutely bananas. Yeah. How was he like on a night like that? Was he still just kind of? Well, it was uh, the whole. Actually, the energy went like this. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was great for the first couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Oh man, was it rehearsed and stuff, or was it pretty loose? Uh, technically, we rehearsed for two weeks, but he was almost never there. Wow. Yeah, it was really weird. Oh, my God. It was very strange, man. He just, again, he just, he wasn't ready for it. Right. As simple as that. And you'd come from playing with Joni, who was probably kind of the opposite, Oh, that was right? just beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit about playing with her? Like, like I've always really been interested in people that accompany her in particular, because she's so, her harmonic sense is so precise, and her guitar playing is dense. Like, there's all these crazy chords and stuff that are even hard to interpret, right? Like, Well, I, tunings. I, yeah, t- she open tunes the So, how did you find your way in her music? Like, what was that process like? It was, um, you know, first of all, we had charts, very okay. professional charts. Who would have done those? Tom Scott. Okay. I think. Yeah. Was the musical director for the album Court and Spark. So we were doing Court and Spark. It's hissing of the summer lawns that you play on, right? Yeah. Okay, so Court and Spark was done. You was there guitar? Was there an electric guitar player on that record? Oh yeah, there's there a few, but okay. Larry Carlton is, Larry is Carlton. prominent. Okay. Yeah, and a couple of other people. And was she playing guitar the whole night, or piano, or just singing, or what Both? was her all. everything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, playing and singing all the time, either the piano or. or acoustic and was guitar. she cool with your approach? Like, oh, you know, I mean, I, I was learning, uh-huh. but um, I fit. You know, I, I somehow fit, and I don't. I don't even know how. I wasn't ready for that, but they guided me believed uh-huh. in me liked me and it's like and at that I, point you were like 21 maybe i was 22 22 that's crazy yeah i had my 22nd birthday just before going out with her wow she was glorious 
Just wonderful. She and that must have been incredible. Like, she was just, like, in her prime, too. Absolutely. Like, just I was vocally there so at strong. the best time. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, the following uh, album was Hissing of Summer Lawns, and everything was kind of not so good at that time. In what there way? There was too much cocaine. Oh, yeah. In the world. <laughs> yeah. In the whole world at that time. You yeah. Know? And it really messed with people and things. Uh-huh. I, you know... Not to make myself out to be a, a saint, <laughs> but uh, I couldn't do cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know, it did. I didn't feel good. But it was just so, everywhere. Well, everybody else did, you know, <laughs> and I, I would, I would join in too, you know. Yeah. But it was just sort of like almost like a disease. Yeah. And it really, it really made everything go bad. Really, you know, it really did. It messed with that whole second tour was just a, you know, really a drag and. It, she canceled. It was going to be like nine months long tour yeah. all over the world. We were going to Japan and Europe, and after the first two months, she canceled it. Really? And she did the right thing. You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, but when she came back and did the thing with Jocko and uh, right. Pat Metheny and Lyle Mays, yeah. and Randy Breck, Michael Amazing. Brecker, and all that. That was like a whole new. That chapter. was an, a high point too. So I, I say I was there at the best time, and I think in a way, yes, but. That's Shadows and Light, you know, uh, live concert, you know? Yeah, so you... Unbelievable. There's, um, what's the live record called? Miles of Isles, you're on that, right? Yeah, live album. And, and Shadows and Light is a live performance video. Oh, okay. If you haven't seen it, you should do yourself a favor. It's been a while. I have seen it. <clears throat> it's, um, it's brilliant. Uh, Miles of Isles was done, like, in the first tour you did with her? Or yeah. Was that Okay. Recorded in 74, came out in 75. That's a cool record, and you've got lots of room to move in there. Like Beautiful she must record. Well, I learned how to do that doing it. Really? Yeah, I had never done that. <laughs> and did you and her like figure out guitar stuff at all, or was she just sort of like you do your thing and I'll do my thing? And well, I was playing parts, yeah, you know, from the record, or something akin to parts. You know, there's a lot of that, you know, volume pedal stuff. A lot of swelling and yeah. textural stuff, which you know Larry Carlton was doing that on the album, right? So I was sort of mimicking, you know, what I heard. Not duplicating, but mimicking, doing yeah. the best I could. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he sounds like a pedal like steel at, at times, even on that record. Yeah, a little bit. But by the time you made the Hissing of the Summer Lawns record, mm-hmm. things were sort of off the rails. Like, it wasn't, a yeah. great, it wasn't a great experience. No. I like that record, though. The record's fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. What do you remember about, about that session? Just wonderful to be working with wonderful musicians and a great yeah. artist. Yeah. You know, honestly. I, I only recorded, like, in the studio two or three different days. Uh-huh. You know, we cut tracks. It was that quick? Uh, well, my your, part. Your part was. Nobody wanted to, you know, spend weeks cutting tracks, man. You know, you went in there and you... Got her done. Yeah. You, and, you know, if you didn't, then you recut it. You know? Yeah, yeah. But... Cutting tracks was not uh, a laborious, you know. Well, you guys were all so good, too. Like, what's the point? They were. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to fix things. You know? <laughs> you know, there is something I would like to talk about um, uh, with you because, you know, I don't know how much time we're, we're going to be here together. But, you know, I, I mentioned that getting off the road was a big deal for me, yeah. you know, at this point, why I came to Nashville. So producing records is what I'm doing now. I just produced a record on a young artist named uh, Daniel Donato. Do you know who Daniel is? I do, is? yeah. Okay. I just produced a record on him. I got funding for it yeah. and got him a record deal. Great. 
Yeah, very happy about that. He's quite something, that kid. Very good. Very yeah. talented. Yeah. And cool person. And yeah. Uh, understands social media and things yeah. like that. Uh, just produced this record with Bill Evans. That won't be out until, you know, probably July, something like that. And uh, also, I'm going to be producing a record on uh, Paul Franklin, the, the great steel Excellent. player who has yeah. just been inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Amazing it took this long. And you know it. And, what's and that? he's never made a record. Yeah, I guess he hasn't, right? He has never made a record, man. So this is something I'm very excited about. So have you made the record with him? No, we're scheduled to record in March. And what's the, what's the, the vibe going to be? What, you, what kind of record are you going to make? Oh, hard to describe, I, I think. Um, you're going to play on it, or are you just yeah. producing it? Okay. So is Vince Gill. Yeah. And um, a guitarist that I haven't met in person yet, I was only recently introduced to via Have You Heard... Kind of a bluegrass guy, Richard. Oh, okay. An acoustic player. Yeah. Probably we'll his electric, be. too. But um, uh, I don't think I know Anyway, okay. the concept is to have Paul Franklin in the middle of the room. He's the featured artist, but all the people around him are me, Vince Gill, you know, this other guy who's very good. well known. A solid rhythm section. And so, you know, he's the jewel in the, you know, in the diamond ring. So uh, His tunes? Uh, I've written for him. Okay. Uh, he's writing a little bit. He's writing with others a little bit. And Vince and I and him uh, okay. are going to get together and write, which we haven't done yet. And Vince will probably sing a couple or something. Oh, no. This is, is all, all instrumental, instrumental music. Cool. Yeah, this is all about playing. And that's yeah. that's that's the kind of records that I really. Um, you never get to hear guys like that do that. Ever. Exactly. Which is crazy because they're so fucking good. Yeah. I went and saw Lloyd Green. Uh, do you know who he is? I don't. So he's like an old school. He's the guy that played like in the Birds in the 60s. You might have seen him. You know, he played on like Sweetheart of the Rodeo. <laughs> That's, but, uh, I, I saw the earlier band. Okay. So, he, but he's a monster steel player. Uh-huh. And he played down at the Station Inn. I went to see him and he was like, he's incredible, but he doesn't think that anyone wants to hear him play the pedal steel. So he plays the, these really short, like minute long songs and oh, they'll yeah. stop and then he'll talk for quite a while. But you can tell he's like, you people don't really want to hear me play this wacky instrument, but everyone really everyone does, does, you know. And Paul Franklin, not that he does that same thing, but like you, you know, with the time jumpers, you get to hear him play, yeah, stretch out a little bit, a little bit, but yeah. not in the way this that this is him. This is going to be cool. I'm very excited. Yeah, man. The other guitar player is Richard Bennett. So that is my primary focus right now is, is producing producing these records John Jorgensen I'm producing in February wow really yeah what kind of record are you doing with him great you know he's kind of directing that one it's going to have a, uh, three different bands on it actually he's okay. going to do some gypsy jazz yeah he's going to do some bluegrass yeah and he's going to do something with a harpist like a harp harp, harp. wow with this yeah so I'm not even quite sure what's going to happen there but beyond that uh, I have just uh launched uh, an instructional channel. Uh, I, I do a lot of instructional materials that are produced by a company called Truefire. Yes, I know it. They have a channel platform. So, you know, any individual, quite frankly, yeah. anybody could actually have a channel on Truefire. Yeah. They have the platform. It's ready to go. They offer you the platform and you, you provide the content. So, I have just launched my own personal channel, which is for both beginning I've started a beginner's course, and I've got an intermediate course, and they run side by side. You can look at, you know, one can, if a beginner can look at the intermediate and vice versa. And uh, new lesson in both categories every week, ad infinitum. 
Yeah. You know? And this is a thing where you like subscribe to it and you get it's access. A subscription to it. based thing, yeah. So do I subscribe to the Robin Ford thing or just to True Fire in general and I get no, access? No, to, to my channel, which okay. is, uh, it's, it's the Robin Ford Guitar Dojo right. channel. Okay. Yeah. You may have heard of the Guitar Dojo. Yes. <laughs> That's my That's you. teaching handle. Right. Okay. Yeah, the Guitar Dojo. So have you always been into teaching? Well, I started doing it uh, in the 80s uh, a little bit. I had a I had an instructional video of yours mm-hmm. way back, and it was awesome. Like you were a really good teacher. Well, thank you. Uh, but I but did you I, teach when you were young or anything? No. Okay. I, again, I was I learned by doing, and uh, what happened was I realized that, and this this would apply to any musician, quite honestly, anybody yeah. who, who can play something, you know, who any, anybody who's a true musician. All you got to do is open your mouth, start talking about it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. No concept. You don't need a concept. And you can talk about music all day. I agree. So when I realized that was my chop. You just open the floodgates. Yeah. yeah. Just talk about it. Right. Pick a subject. Just start talking about it. And you start getting excited because you're kind of sharing something that you know a little something about. Yeah, man. Do you have somebody there like sort of like well, spurring you Fire, on a little yes. bit? Okay. And that's, that was one of the you know real kind of gifts of the whole true fire thing i was produced and still am whenever i do anything there okay uh brad, brad wencos okay it's his company and yeah. uh he produces all the videos and he's right there in the room with you and he okay. says so robin take that voicing you have on that nine chord you yeah. know and talk a little bit about that you okay. know and maybe play some riffs you yeah. know yeah <laughs> stuff like that and he's really good at it. Okay. And uh, I also, I, I think quickly, you know, again, it, it, I, I learned the chop, you know, again, by doing. And you obviously so enjoy it. I have come to enjoy it. Okay. It wasn't I, a... I initially started doing it strictly as a, you know, I needed to make some money. <laughs> and the opportunity came up and I yep. took it to get paid. But after a while, it was like, Kinda this is it. actually working for me, yeah. you know, yeah. in, in every way. I do like teaching. Did you take lessons when you were a kid? No, I'm self-taught. You're totally self-taught. Yeah. So you never even had that experience of like learning from somebody in that uh-uh. way. And I think this is one of the a positive thing. You know, it's like turning a weakness into a strength. Because I'm a self-taught guitar player, these people are self-teaching themselves, you know, online. So it's like, I, I know you. Yeah. I have been you. <laughs> and here's what I did. I literally start, you know, with the E minor pentatonic scale. Right, yeah. at, right at right at the one. beginning. Yeah. Here's an E chord, and it's actually I I, I like got excited about it. It's like <laughs> man, I love this stuff. You know, yeah. like the very beginning thing is yeah. like that. It's beautiful. The do, simplest thing is beautiful. You know. Do you find that it sort of enlightens you to your own playing a little bit? Like you didn't even realize that you've been it doing does. certain things. And yeah, I mean, teaching. Like I, I I realized one day that I was a modal player. I hadn't known that before. Okay. I didn't realize I was a modal player, but I'm absolutely a modal player. Uh, and I'm not a linear player or a you know horizontal player. <laughs> right. I'm a modal player. Okay. Know? That's how I uh, develop when, when I'm up there improvising. You know, it's it's basically the white keys of the piano. So you'll be doing that and producing for people yeah. and making more Robin Ford records. Like when? It- well, I I, uh, I hope to make an. It's there to be made at any time. You know, I, my last record, Purple House, I owe them one more record. Okay, which label is that on? Uh, Ear Music, which is a subsidiary of Adel Publishing. It's a yeah. German company. It's like the largest publisher in, uh, uh, certainly in Germany. 
maybe Europe. And they have deep pockets, so they have a record company too now. Okay. <laughs> and they just give you a budget to make a record, and you go make a record? Yeah, and, they and just the... say do whatever you want. Great. They have no input into the artistic direction <laughs> of it. No. That's nice. Yeah. So that's <laughs> how Purple House came about. And uh, now I, I'm kind of itching to make, I'm really getting back into instrumental music. So I'm kind of itching to make a... That would be nice to hear. I'd love to hear a, a current Robin Ford instrumental yeah. record. Because it's been, when's the last time you made an instrumental record? Uh, well, I've been making these records with Bill. Right, okay. So I get to satisfy that you okay. know, in that way. It's been nice. And getting to play with musicians who are at that level. You know, we had James Genus on bass on the last record. Do you know who James is? I don't. No, who's that? He's the bass player for the Saturday Night Live band. Oh, wow, okay. In New York. Yep. But he's also, he's been with Herbie Hancock for like 18 years. So if you can play with Herbie Hancock, he you knows can play a thing with or anybody. Two. And he's a beautiful cat. Again, Keith Carlock on drums, who, you know, he's with Steely Dan right now, but he yeah. played with Sting. He's, you know, he's one of those he's top a monster. 10, yeah. you know, drummers in the world kind of You people. love playing with him? He's amazing. So to get to play with people like that, you know, is, is rare and a blast. And that's an advantage, I guess, for you living here in Nashville. That's another... Well, I actually created that whole thing. I mean, Bill called me for Japan, but it just so happens that Keith Carlock lives here. So it's like, okay. Had you known him there's before? There's two guys we don't have to buy hotel rooms for, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So Bill and James just came down together from New York. Okay. You know, rent a car. Yeah. Got them hotel rooms. Yes, resources right here in Nashville. Yeah. Studios all over the place. I have already have nice relationships with people. Yeah. And, Do you like uh, a bunch of studios around town, or have you just found one or two that you like to work at? And I am... Uh, Enamored with Studio A over at Sound Emporium, and um, I just cut uh, Daniel Donato's record over there. I did my. Uh, did you play on Daniel's record? Did I play on it? Yeah. No. Okay. Just let him no, do it. This yeah. is you and your band live. So um, uh, I cut uh, my album Into the Sun in Studio B over there. Okay. At Sound Emporium. Yeah, it's a beautiful sounding room. Yeah. That's where T Bone Burnett does all his records. Uh, in the A room. Because I know that he was just over there. I actually had dates booked there <clears throat> for Daniel, and I got a call from Juanita, who's the studio manager. She said, "Robin, um, <laughs> T-Bone wants those dates. It's uh, that was the Robert Plant record, probably. Robert Plant yeah. and Alice and Krauss. Yeah, and I'm like, you got it, Juanita. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Yeah, funny how rich people get what they want, isn't it? <laughs> Would you do sessions here? Like, is that something you're interested in doing? Because there's so much. I about would. It. Yeah. I would do something that I, you know, that I would enjoy. Have you started that doing that at all, or it hasn't nope. come up yet? That has not come up. Yeah. And you know, it takes a while before people think of you as someone that would do that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Because <laughs> everybody thinks of me as a guy making his own records exactly. and traveling around. There's, so, and there's a real divide here in this town, especially. Mm -hmm. that there's like touring people and there's studio people, and they don't tend to be the same people. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Except Paul Franklin. Except Paul Franklin. <laughs> Although I don't think he does a lot of touring anymore, does he? He has been. He has? Oh, he's okay. been out with both Vince Gill and uh, Chris Stapleton. And he's going oh, out with again Chris with Stapleton. Chris this year. Oh, okay. So he's, you know, everybody wants Paul Franklin, man. That's a nice fat paycheck, I bet. I can't wait to make <laughs> his record. Yeah, that'll be very cool, it's man. It's going to be You're going to really do that at really Sound cool. Emporium or Southern Ground? Yeah, Studio A. Well, if you need an assistant engineer, let me know. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'll come and schlep gear around. I'd love to see that. All right. <laughs>
well, thanks, man. Thanks so much for uh, talking to me today. My and pleasure. I've, I've been a fan for for a long time, wow. and it's great to meet you and um, right and have you. you over part of this. Thank you. Enjoyed it. All right, that was my conversation with Robin Ford. I, I hope you enjoyed it. It was uh, sure a treat to have him here at the studio. And we will be bringing you another episode next week and every week thereafter until this nightmare is over. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.